For the want of a nail, a shoe is lost. For the want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For the want of a horse, the rider was lost. For the want of a rider, the message was lost. For the want of a message, the battle was lost. For the want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. According to Wikipedia, that little poem or proverb uh, has been translated into a number of different languages and goes back about to the 13th century. And the point of it is this. Something of great importance may depend upon something which is apparently trivial. Something of great importance can sometimes depend on something that's apparently of trivial detail. Now, that's certainly the case in the Christian life. Um, matters of great importance on what we may perceive to be, well, comparatively speaking, small potatoes. Uh, again and again, the Lord calls us back to important things. Uh, one such example, I think, and I'm going to do a little survey in a moment, one such example of something that may seem to be trivia, uh, trivial but is very important is, well, what we think pleases God. I wonder, how many of you this week spend any time thinking about, hmm, what pleases God? And in a world that's fast-paced like ours, that is certainly one that can get pushed to the back burner. Who cares about what pleases God? I've got other things on my plate. Well, that's our topic today. What God most likes. And Bill read the passage for us. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, if you have a Bible and can turn to it. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Now, before we look at that, though, let's just kind of retrace our steps a little bit uh, over the book of Ephesians. What have we seen so far? First of all, the first half of chapter 1, God has a grand plan. He is bringing all things together in Christ. How is he able to do that? Well, the second part of chapter 1 tells us God can do his plan because he's so powerful. He raised Jesus from the dead. What's the point of God's plan? That's at the beginning of chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verse 4, we're told God's point in what he's doing is to express his love toward us. And to whom does he express his love? Well, the last half of chapter 2, to his people, Jew and Gentile, far and near, then we begin in chapter 3 and we notice something about those people. They are powerless. 
apart from the work of Christ in their lives. And that now brings us to the end of chapter 3, where we talk about what pleases God. Now, if you remember, in the last half of chapter 2, where Paul is talking about the people of God, uh, he says that Christ is so powerful that he can bring together and is bringing together people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation, Jew and Gentile. He is uniting them into one body. And then, as Paul launches into chapter 3, he says, for this reason, for what reason? For, for the reason that we just talked about, God's grand plan of bringing everybody together. For this reason, and then he digresses. He interrupts his own train of thought, and among other things, look at verse 8 of chapter 3, he tells us that he views himself as the least of all saints. No, he doesn't say it quite that way. He says, I'm the I'm less than the least of all the saints. Now, that seemingly small point is an important point. It's important for this reason. The Lord accomplishes his purposes through people that appear to be powerless. How's that for a series of... People like Paul and like you and me. And so when Paul says that he's the least of all the saints, there's hope for us, wherever we might find ourselves today. Whatever your situation, the Lord is at work. He's got you covered. Now, verse 14 of chapter 3, which is where we're beginning today, uh, verse 14 picks up where Paul left off in verse 1. He does this digression. He goes down in the weeds. But now he kind of brings himself back, and he says in verse 14, using the same words that he used at the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, he says, for this reason. For what reason? Because of what God is doing to make his people from all different kinds of backgrounds, a more and more fit place in which the Holy Spirit can live. Now, three truths, then, directly related to what pleases God follow. And uh, if you're outlining and you want to know what the outline is going to be, well, here it is. Uh, verses 14 to the beginning of 17, God's goal for his people. And then the end of verse 17 to the beginning of verse 19, God's means to his goal, how he's going to get there. And then the third point is verses 19 to 21, God's ultimate end game. God's goal, his mean, the end game. Very simple. First then, what's God's goal for his people? Well, look at verses 14 and following. Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father. Paul had prayed a prayer for the Ephesians, and this is his prayer report. I bow my knees to the Father. 
And just a couple notes on praying. In the Bible, standing was the most common way that people prayed. Jesus makes reference to it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. But it wasn't the only way that people prayed. Uh, for example, remember our friend Daniel? He spent one night in a lion's B&B. And it looked like he was going to be the breakfast. In the lead up to that experience, what does he do? We're told he prays. He's down on his knees praying. And Jesus as well, Garden of Gethsemane, he prays on his knees as he's approaching his death. And the Bible also tells us that there's a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Prayer posture can make a difference, and here Paul bows to pray. And I suppose it's a way of physically acknowledging his dependence on the Lord, God's authority over him, and I suspect the Bible doesn't say, but I suspect his kneeling might also be a way of him saying to the Lord, now this is really important. These people at Ephesus, they need help. So I'm serious now about what I'm praying. Now, just in passing, how are you doing with your prayers for the church? For covenant? for the churches of Berks County, churches in our Presbytery, the church all over the world. How are you doing in your prayer? And speaking of praying, uh, next Sunday night, not this Sunday night, but next Sunday night, 6 o'clock, we'll gather here to prayer, and you're invited to come. Well, I said, Paul starts chapter 3 digressing. Unless we digress anymore, let's move on to what he has to say. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, and now he's going to talk to us about God's goal for his people, and it's right there in verse 17. It begins back in verse 14, but we get to the guts of it in verse 17. I bow my knee so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's a purpose statement, and it answers the question of God's goal that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, the Bible says there are two kinds of people in the world. There are some that are included in the life of God, and there are others that are excluded from the life of God. It's true across the whole world, two kinds of people. And Paul is talking to believers in Ephesus, and the amazing thing is that Christ chooses to live in his people so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, is what he says here. And that's the Lord's intention for all those that belong to him. Now, just as an aside, how does a person get included? How does that happen? Well, it's very, very simple and wonderful. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, He who believes on the Son 
has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So Jesus, then, is the great dividing line in history. Personal faith in Christ is the path to the life of God. God's goal, then, he says, is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And what happens? When Christ is in a person's life, second, by minute, by hour, by day, by month, by year, by decade, when, a, when Christ is in a person's life, what happens? Moment by moment, little by little, he is changed. And that's true not just of individuals, it's, tr it's true of church bodies. Little by little, as Christ dwells among us, we are changed to bear the image of our Lord and Savior. Uh, it's another way of describing God's goal for his people, that we be conformed to the image of his Son. But what goes on when a person becomes Christ-like? Well, it involves all the persons of the Trinity. Did you notice? Look at uh, verse 16. Paul prays that the Father may grant you to be strengthened. The Father is the one who does the giving of himself to his people. Giving so that you can be strengthened. Apart from the strengthening work of the Father, the children are impotent. Spiritually speaking, it's like they are um, limp, wet dish rags. But the Father is the great giver. And so he gives out of his resources again and again and again. He's involved. How about the Spirit? Well, again, look at verse 16. With power through his Spirit in your inner being. Now, we're not talking about power so that we can lift big barbells. It's rather the Lord gives power to his people that's not seen by the human eye. It's an internal thing. And then Christ does the indwelling, again, verse 17, as we've already noted, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, we've talked generally about how the indwelling of Christ in a person's life affects him. But let me give you a, a more specific example. Uh, when Margie, not her name, went off to college, uh, she was a baby Christian. Just come to know the Lord a few weeks before she headed off for her freshman year. But the Swansons were a campus ministry couple, and they took her under their wing. And they said, you know, being a Christian is developing a relationship with Jesus where you trust him more and more. And he enables you to do things that he wants you to do. So why don't you begin to pray that the Lord will give you opportunity 
to talk to somebody else about Jesus and the newfound faith that you've just experienced. Now, let me tell you about Margie. If she were here today, she would say to you, I was very nervous around people. I could not sell Girl Scout cookies. And what she really meant by that is, if she had been given the task of selling Girl Scout cookies in her neighborhood, she would have knocked on the door and said, I'm selling Girl Scout cookies and I'm sure you don't want any. That's how, that's how uh, nervous she was about doing anything promotional. So that was one of her problems. Another one of her problems when the Swansons suggested she share her faith with somebody was this. She had grown up in a church where people did not do that. People in this church keep religion to themselves. That was the mantra in her congregation. That was the unspoken culture there. So she took, surprisingly, she took the Swanson's advice. And she did offer a prayer to the Lord. Lord, help me to be able to share my faith and promptly forgot about it. But one night, there was a knock on her dorm room door and in came a very timid co-ed. And she hemmed and hawed around a while, and then she said, uh, I, I know that you do Bible studies, and I was wondering, could you tell me how I could know Christ? Thunderstruck does not grasp the impact those words had on Margie. The initial experience had been a cascading uh, result in her life, and she said, I learned from that not only to ask the Lord to give me more opportunities to talk to others about him, but also to trust him for other things like where I was going to park my car or um, how I was going to pay my bill. I can't tell you what a thrilling ride it's been. She would have said something like that. The Lord has been so faithful. Well, that's a very brief snippet of what it's like for Christ to live in a believer and to live by faith. It's taking God at his word, it's entrusting yourself to him, and then it's waiting for him to provide in ways you never imagined possible. God's goal for his people is that they be conformed to the image of his son. That's what Paul says here. But how's that going to happen? Well, that takes us to God's means. How does God work in people's lives? And that's found for us in the end of verse 17 down through the beginning of verse 19. You can see right away that this section is structured like a bullseye. Uh, if you look at verses 14 and 15, there's a reference to every family. If you look at verse 21, there's a reference to a parallel idea, all generations. But now come in one level, one circle closer to the center. Uh, what's in verse 16? Reference to being strengthened. And what is over in verse 20? Uh, he is able according to his power. And then we move in one more ring, 
And uh, we have rooted and founded in love in verse 17 and the love of Christ in verse 19 and what's right in the center of this whole thing. To know the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. Do you see it? It's right there in verse 18. See it? Now, that structure is one of the ways, it's not the only way, but it's one of the ways that Paul communicates his point. Knowing the love of Christ is the way that God has ordained for his people to make progress in a relationship with him. You want to be more like Jesus? Well, then get to know more of his love for you. That's the simple plan. Now, interestingly, look at verse 19. This is a little mind-boggling, but verse 19 says that knowing the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. And yet, if I want to progress, I need to know the love of God better. How's that work? Just think about it. Jesus laid down his life for you. He was willing to die, to give up his life, so that you might be saved. How do you explain that? It's just mind-blowing. It's beyond comprehension. And yet, getting to know his self-sacrificing love is the very thing to which we're called. Well, how do we get to know Christ's love? It's true. You can go off and read your Bible and pray in your closet. You can do this privately. But getting to know Christ's love is not a hermit activity. It is not a lone ranger kind of approach to things. It's not a just Jesus and me way of living. You say, prove it. Okay, let's look at the next verses. Notice all the plurals in verses 17 and 18 and the beginning of verse 19 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, that is, y'all, being rooted and grounded in love may have strength, plural, to comprehend plural with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know, plural, the love of Christ. In other words, understanding the love of Christ is a group thing. We learn together. We must do it together. Uh, one commentator puts it like this. Since we learn from other people, knowledge is generally communal. This is especially true of love, whose nature can only be grasped through interaction with others. The true understanding of Christ's love is not then an individual experience, but takes place in the community. 
How striking is that? Christ's love is beyond understanding, and yet we get to know it little by little in relationship to one another. Dick and Melinda were having marriage problems. And mostly because Dick was a druggie. But one night, a team from church stopped by to share the gospel, and the Lord saved Dick on the spot. Amazing. He began coming to church, attending the men's weekly breakfast, pitching for the church softball team, and helping with the kids' club that met every week. Dick learned to love Christ in the context of his relationships with other believers in the church, in that fellowship. And it has made a huge difference in his life. The last time I talked to him, he said, yeah, you know, I hope, because of all that Jesus has done for me, I'll one day be able to serve the church as an elder. Well, God's goal that we be conformed to the image of Christ. His means to that goal, learning more and more about the love of Christ in community with other believers. And let me just pause and do a little digression here, not a long one, but a little one. Would you please mark August 28 on your calendar, a few Sundays down the road. That Sunday, we're going to focus our attention on small groups. And so the sermon will be to lay out some of what the Bible says on our importance of being together. And then we're going to have lunch afterwards, and at lunchtime you'll see small group leaders and uh, be able to think about, well, where might I fit into a small group? We want you to be in a small group. It's a way of being touched by the love of Christ and sharing the love of Christ. So God's goal is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. His means is learning the love of Christ in community. And now please look at verses 19 to 21. Um, what's God's ultimate end game? Well, verse 19 says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then in verse 21 he says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What gives God pleasure? What gives him the highest pleasure? What gives him the most pleasure? It is crystal clear. God gets the most pleasure when he enjoys himself. His ultimate end game is to display and to enjoy his own person and his perfections in the church and throughout all generations. Now, when I first thought about that idea, it sort of took me back. Are you telling me that God is self-centered? Well, yeah, I'm telling you that. I'm not telling you that. That's what the Bible says. Who else has the right to be self-centered if not God? Isn't he the best? Doesn't he do everything for his own glory? 
John Piper uh, recasts the first question and the answer to the shorter catechism like this. The, the catechism question is, what's the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so Piper puts, asks this question, what's the chief end of God? And the answer is, the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God likes himself. God wants to make a big deal out of God. I mean, who has more reason, right? Remember back in verses 14 to 17 when we were talking about God's purpose so that he would dwell in your heart? What we found is that that takes place through the efforts of the combined efforts of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jonathan Edwards uh, has an interesting uh, study on this topic that makes sense. He says, God made the world, Adam and Eve, you and me, the flowers, the trees, all that. Uh, he brought all of that into being so that it would extend his enjoyment of himself in part by our enjoyment of him. Now, if that's so, loving him as individuals and loving God as a body makes perfect sense. We don't have to love God. We get to love God. We don't have to love one another. We get to love one another. And in so doing, we're simply putting on display and extending the love of God, that which gives him most pleasure. Eric Little, Chariots of Fire fame, familiar with him? Well, he came to the 1924 Olympics in Paris to run the 100-meter race, but dropped out because he was a Christian, and he believed the fourth commandment, and the 100-meter race was going to be on Sunday. And so he picked another race, the 400-meter, which was going to be during the week, and he won that anyway. Well, raised in China by missionary parents, he was ordained by the Congregational Union of Scotland. And after he'd finished his education, he went back to the country where he was raised as a minister of the gospel. It wasn't long before war between China and Japan erupted. And he was eventually imprisoned as an, they called him, they called him an enemy alien uh, in a civilian internment camp. Now, those difficulties might have stifled any expressions of his love for the Lord and his people, but the difficulties had just the opposite effect in Eric's life. There's a book entitled The Campus of Loving Truth, written by a fellow missionary that describes life in the prison camp. And in it, the author talks about how Eric went about helping the elderly, uh, leading 
Bible classes and teaching science to the children who came to affectionately call him Uncle Eric. And that missionary went on to say, I never heard him say a bad word about anybody. Eric died about five months before the end of the war. But in reference to his calling of giving his life in loving sacrifice, he said this. He said, it's complete surrender. God's end game is the display of his own glory. And he wants the world to know his love. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Something, of, something great, something of great importance, may depend on something that's apparently trivial. I wonder, what more can you do with the apparently trivial opportunities to show love to those around you? Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you to bless it. Please move in our hearts who have been so touched by your spirit uh, so that we give ourselves in love to the display of your glory. And we ask these mercies in Jesus' name, amen.